Well, I'd invite you to open up uh, in your Bibles to our passage for today. We're looking at Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. Luke 7, 36 to 50. Well, uh, let's look at our passage today. Luke chapter 7, uh, starting in verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood beside him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. She then wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven." as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would speak to us this morning. We thank you that your word is a living word, and we pray that your word, through the power of your Holy Spirit, as he is at work among us, would build each one of us up more and more into the likeness of Christ. We pray that every single person who has entered here this morning will walk away looking more and being more like Jesus. And so we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Have you ever been thirsty? Probably we all have. Have you ever been not just thirsty, but parched, dying for a glass of water? I remember the time that I was probably the most thirsty was back a a number of years uh, when I was in the Marine Corps, and we were doing a month-long training exercise in the Mojave Desert in Southern California, known in an area known as 29 Palms, or as we like to call it, 29 Stumps. (laughs) And for the culminating exercise while we were out there, Each rifle company, we were out in this big desert between these mountains, uh, engaged in this complex maneuver where they would move down the valley, supported by snipers, mortars, artillery, tanks, helicopters, and even one or two F-18s. And each day we were told that we expended, which is a fancy word for blew up, over $1 million worth of bombs and ammunition. And it was pretty cool. Wrong word, though. It was not cool. It was horribly hot in the middle of July 
in the Mojave Desert, the lows might get below 100. It was one of the few places I've been where the wind actually made things worse. That when the wind blew, it felt like you just opened up an oven set to 375 degrees and you feel that heat blast. And we were camping out there, sleeping out in the desert sand. There's nothing for shade. It's blistering heat. And we were out there for about five days for this exercise. And each day we would get a resupply. And we would all look on the horizon for that dust cloud, meaning the resupply truck is coming. And the most important thing on that truck were these 30-pound bags of ice. I've never longed for ice more in my life, so much so that when that truck came and had barely stopped moving, there was a group of us all huddled around the trailer in the back, and we would grab, stick our hands into those bags of ice, and with our grimy fingers, take those quickly melting ice cubes and throw them into our camelbacks or put them right into our mouth. And we didn't care that that ice was being fingered by 20 other guys, most of whom hadn't washed their hands in a few days. We didn't care about the chunks of mud on the ice or that it was all you know, dirty and grimy. We just cared that there was somewhat cool water that we could drink. It was the dirtiest and the best tasting water I've ever had. A cup of cold water is nice in the winter. It's amazing after a day of yard work in the summer, but after camping outside in the Mojave Desert, it's downright heavenly. And we see a similar principle here in our passage, that the more you know you're a sinner, the more God's forgiveness will feel like a cup of cold water in the desert. So what does God's forgiveness feel like to you? Do you long for him like a glass of cold water? Do you pant for him in the desert? Or do you feel like, well, you know, my life's okay. I'm not too bad. I'm better than most people. And yeah, cold water is nice, but I don't need it. I'm doing pretty good just myself. And the question I want each of you to ask yourself this morning is, have you truly repented before Jesus? Have you truly repented before Jesus. And I'm just going to walk through this story and then draw out a few applications from it. So Jesus is gaining popularity, and that means he's also gaining his fair share of critics, especially from the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day. He's not playing according to their rules. He's doing, even doing things that kind of undermine their systems of self-righteousness that make them feel so good about themselves. But now, one of the Pharisees, named Simon, does something unexpected. He throws a dinner party and he invites Jesus to come. Now, this seems nice, but as we work through the passage, we'll learn that probably this is more a case of keep your friends close and your enemies closer. If you look at verse 44, you see, though Simon invited Jesus into the party, he didn't extend to him any of the normal customs that you would do for a guest at your dinner party. It seems that all Simon could bear to do was invite Jesus into his home but he wouldn't dare get his foot washing towels dirty with Jesus' feet. So why did Simon invite Jesus into his home if he wasn't going to treat him nicely? Well, perhaps Simon was curious and he wanted to see Jesus face to face and see what he said before he made a, a judgment on him. I think it's probably more likely, though, that he and the other Pharisees were gathering intel. As Jesus gained popularity, they started looking for ways to entrap Jesus and, and get him stuck and in trouble with the authorities. 
And so this dinner party starts, and you can picture the scene. Uh, It's in a room, and and the tables back then were much shorter than the ones today. You may picture picture something more like a a traditional Japanese table that just sits a foot or so off the ground, and people sit on cushions on the floor around that table. And as you sit, you would often uh, sit with your feet kind of kicked out behind you, and you would rest on your left arm, freeing your right arm to grab food and to eat and, and pass food around. And suddenly, in the middle of this dinner party, there's a commotion at the front entrance. And Simon's wondering, wait, wait, who's not here? I think everybody's here. Who's this late guest? And then you see this woman walk into the room. And people are in the middle of probably a lively discussion, but it's one of those moments that you've been in where all of a sudden the room goes quiet. And everyone is staring at this uninvited guest. And people are going through in their heads thinking, wait, I I recognize this woman. Notice verse 39 where Simon says to himself, if Jesus were a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman she is. She's a sinner. This is one of the the few details we know about her. She's lived a sinful life. And we don't know for sure what this sinful life is, but to call a woman a sinner like this, it, it tended back then to be a euphemism for a prostitute. And, and the tradition that we have has passed that down, that that is probably what she was. But whatever it was that she made her a sinner, everybody knew that she was a sinner. She had a lot of baggage. And this woman has just entered into Simon's home uninvited. Simon and others recognize her. They recognize her from out on the street corner where she would hang out and look for business. And She's been around enough that they know her. They know what kind of work she's in. You know, it seems like this, in this town, maybe even some of these men had been her clients. And this lively dinner party goes quiet by the presence of this uninvited guest. All eyes are on her. She just walked into one of the most uninviting spaces for a woman like her the house of a Pharisee, people whose life's work is to make a point of showing how righteous and clean they are. They might proposition her in a dark alley, but in their home, when other people are around, they're quick to show how disgusted they are by a sinner like that. And yet, all those eyes of judgment won't keep her away from the chance to see Jesus verse 37 tells us she learned Jesus was going to be at this party. And the forgiveness of Jesus was worth more to her than all the judgment she would face from all those other people there. She loved Jesus so much that she didn't care what everyone else would think about her. And so she steps forward into that room. She falls down at Jesus' feet. Now she can't hold herself together anymore. She comes undone and tears start pouring down from her face as she sits and kneels at Jesus' feet. And Jesus' feet are getting soaked now. It it would be a little bit embarrassing, but she has years of pent-up tears. You know, and rarely do people like this end up in these situations simply because of their own actions. You know, certainly your own actions play a role. Sometimes one bad decision will set your whole life on a great unraveling. 
But often for most people, and as you get to know people, the people that are begging on the street corners, those losing their fight against addiction, whatever it might be, yes, they're sinners. Yes, they've made mistakes, but often they have also been sinned against in really profound ways. Sexual assault or abuse or fetal alcohol syndrome, suicide of a parent when you're young. These things don't excuse a person's sin, but it's a reminder that we don't sin in a vacuum. We're sinners and we're sinned against, and that is just a bad cocktail for a life on the streets. Sin has a tendency to work its way down through the generations. And I suspect it's probably something similar here. She can't stop crying. She has deep wounds in her life, and she's made bad decisions, and she can't hold it together anymore. And the presence of Jesus has tapped into this reservoir deep in her heart, and it is all coming out. And she takes her hair, these dark curly locks, and uses them as a towel. And then she kisses Jesus' feet, and she pours her perfume on them. And don't miss how uncomfortable this would be for everybody. I mean, this is one, it's before pedicures. I doubt even the Son of God has good feet. But more so, here she's using things that were often part of the tools of her trade, her hair, her lips, her perfume. And she's turning away from all of those things and laying it at Jesus' feet and saying, I want you. And Simon is disgusted. He says to myself, if this man were a prophet, he'd know who this was who was touching him and what kind of woman she was. She's a sinner. So Jesus responds, Simon, I have something to tell you. And Jesus is about to ask a question, but he's actually making a point. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii. A denarius is about a, a day's wages. So think of your salary for the next year and a half, two years. The other owes a man 50 denarii, almost two months' worth of pay. And neither of them have the money to pay the person back, and so he forgives the debts of both. And now which person will love him more? And Simon replies, well, I suppose it's the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You got it right, Jesus says. And then Jesus turns towards that woman. He's looking in her face, but he's speaking to Simon, and he says, Simon... When I came into your house, you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. And now we see Simon invited Jesus over, but he didn't like him. He certainly didn't love him. He didn't extend to him the normal hospitality. You know, maybe for Simon, the jury was still, well, let me check out Jesus, see if I like him or not. But when he sees how Jesus lets this sinner come in and touch him, he's disgusted by it. That's no prophet. That's no righteous man. And Jesus continues, Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. How do you know if your sins have been forgiven? You're willing to walk into a dinner party where you know everyone is going to judge you for your past, but it's worth it 
to be able to fall at Jesus' feet. You're not too worried about what everyone else is going to think about you and your baggage and what you're doing there simply because you want to give your heart, your livelihood, your past, your shame, your dignity, and all those years of tears and lay it at Jesus' feet. You know, they say love makes us do strange things. Has love led you to do strange things for Jesus? Because you want him so much. This brings us to our second point. How does this apply to us? And really what I want to focus on is that this is a picture of true repentance. Technically, what we see here is the fruit of true repentance. We're looking at it from the back end, what a truly repentant and forgiven person looks like. Again, verse 47, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. So it's important to note here that these things she's doing aren't what earn her forgiveness. They're a response to the forgiveness that Jesus has offered her. They're a response to how Jesus has forgiven her debts, and out of that is this love. Her love is the fruit of forgiveness, a love that has led her to do some crazy things. Love is the fruit of repentance. Love comes out of knowing your debts have been paid. I mean, imagine that. You have a year and a half of your salary that you owe somebody, and you can't pay it off. And one day, you discover someone else has paid it. And you would love that person. You would would do anything for them. That is the fruit of repentance, to realize Jesus has paid off my debts. Now, we can contrast that true repentance with some false types of repentance that we often struggle with. One is self-righteous repentance. And the fruit of self-righteous repentance is a feeling of superiority, thinking that I'm doing better than everyone else. Yeah, I'm a sinner, but I'm not as bad as that person. This is what we have in Simon here. Simon would acknowledge, yes, I'm a sinner. I fight so hard against my sin. I take my sin more seriously than anybody else. But it's not true repentance because that repentance is just leading him to feel superior to everybody else who's not trying as hard as him. Simon treated repentance and sin in his life kind of like someone who takes care of all the dandelions in their yard just by mowing a lot. And so it makes it look good from the outside and your lawn looks nice and lush from a distance because, hey, it's still green. And everyone looks at it and says, wow, his lawn is so nice. But under the surface, there are hundreds of weeds that are growing up. And the next morning, one of those dandelions pops up and Simon goes out and sees it. Uh Uh-oh, better get rid of that. And he takes his little trimmers and knocks it out so no one can see it. But his lawn isn't healthy. It just looks good. It's not true repentance. It's a self-righteous repentance that is more concerned with how you look to others and how you justify yourself before others than what is actually going on in the depths of your heart. It never gets to the root of sin. It just deals with how people see it from the outside so you can feel like you're better than others. And the way that you can tell that he has self-righteous repentance is how he reacts to this other sinner. The fruit of self-righteous repentance is a feeling of superiority. I can't believe Jesus would allow someone to touch him who's a horrible sinner like that. I mean, her lawn is awful. Just look at all the weeds. They're out of control. She hasn't done anything about it. I'm glad her house is a block down from mine or else her weeds would start getting into my yard. And he refuses to recognize 
that the very weeds that are on display in public for this woman have the same roots of what is in his heart, but he just does a good job of keeping it all trimmed down so people don't see it. She is, in one sense, she reveals what his heart is full of, and he hates it. He refuses to acknowledge it, and so he hates her. And do you find yourself looking down at others who have visible sins or a checkered past? You might say, oh yeah, I accept them, but in your heart you think, but I'm still better than them. Do you subtly think you're better than others because of how seriously you take your religion or you take your doctrine? This should be a warning for you. Cause for concern that maybe you've never been in the place of true repentance where you've fallen on your knees and you realize that you're just as bad a sinner as that person who you've loved to hate. You're only looking Jesus to do some edge trimming in your life while you hide those thousands of weeds flourishing right below the surface. You don't believe you actually need to come to Jesus on your knees saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Another type of false repentance is what we could call penance. I've just started reading this a short book by Jack Miller called Repentance, and it's, it's less than 100 pages, but it's already had a big impact on me, and I'd encourage everyone else to read it if you get a chance. And in it, he talks about how so much of what we do is actually penance instead of true repentance. And here's what he means. Penance is thinking that you can somehow make up for your sins by punishing yourself or by doing some extra good things that will bring the balance back to zero or put it into the positive. And though it looks humble, right? You feel bad about your sin, but you're not actually, you're the root, you're not actually repenting, but you're actually full of pride because you refuse to freely accept God's grace. Miller writes, those who live by penance, they want to make themselves worthy of grace so that God will reach out to them when this work of preparation is completed. They say, I will not cheapen grace by taking the easy way out. And the fruit of penance is self-hatred. You hate yourself for how you've screwed up. You say, I could never love myself. I'm going to beat myself up. I'm going to replay over and over in my mind all the ways I've screwed up. I'm going to do all these good things. You're driven to be more involved in the church and more kind to others because you need to make up for all the ways you've screwed up, and then maybe God will accept you. But Miller goes on to say penance does not work because it's founded upon self-trust. But repentance unto life is fused with trust in Christ as the all-sufficient mediator between God and man. And Christ always succeeds where human effort fails. Another type of maybe false repentance is what we could call apathy. Some of us just feel apathetic about our sins, about our life. You know you're a sinner. You say you're a sinner, but your heart isn't broken by it. You're not so burdened by your sin that you're willing to go crash a dinner party where everyone else is going to judge you simply because you want to show Jesus how much you love him for taking away your debt. Instead, you'll call Jesus' secretary to see if you can make an appointment and talk with him about some ways you can you know, improve your life a little bit. But you wouldn't humiliate yourself 
in front of others to show how much you love Jesus. Miller again is kind of helpful here where he says, often this is because by our trust and self-dependence, the Spirit has been so quenched that many, many churches, pastors, Christian workers, and lay people think that things are just fine when in fact we have been visited with the dryness of death. I fear this is probably where I am too often. And this week even, I've been praying for God to renew my own heart so that I would feel again. Even if it's just feeling heartbreak over my own sins. And true repentance is this woman who walks into a room where she isn't welcome, where everyone is judging her. But it is worth it because that's where Jesus is. She's been wandering in the desert for so, so long, and she knows she needs to drink that living water if she wants to live. It's the same thing when Jesus met with that Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. Probably many of you are familiar with the story. She's been divorced five times, and the man she's living with, she's not married to. And when Jesus talks to her, he doesn't tell her, well, you need to think more about your sin, or you need to go do this and that to, you know, make yourself right and then come back to me. Or you need to beat yourself up for your mistakes. No, he tells her simply, I am the living water. And if you drink from me, you'll never be thirsty again. He is water that will make you alive. He is water that will help you see the world again. That will make you feel again. Have you ever been thirsty for Jesus? Have you ever longed for him more than ice in the Mojave Desert? Have you ever been so moved by his love and grace for you that you'd crash a dinner party just because the most important thing that you feel like you can do is to fall down at Jesus' feet and weep because of the depths of his grace in your life? Or are you looking to just schedule an appointment with Jesus? Are you working really hard to try to make your lawn look good so everyone thinks you're doing great? Are you beating yourself up for your mistakes, thinking, if I just am cruel enough to myself, then maybe God can love me? Are you just telling yourself, oh, I'm not that bad. Everybody struggles with this. I'll never change. This is just how it's going to be. Let's pray that God would break our hearts again, that he would soften our hearts, that he would make us feel again, make us alive, that we would thirst for him. And it's scary to see yourself truly, to let his light shine into your dark places. But it's only in that way when you are honest with yourself and also keep your eyes fixed on Jesus that you will discover what it means to drink from living waters and be satisfied. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would help us Help us to feel the weight of our sins again. Help us to see how we've gotten callous to our own vices. Help us to see all the ways in which we are false repenters. We judge others. We beat ourselves up. We work extra hard. We don't care that much. Make us a little bit more like this woman who had tasted the depths of that grace of God. So we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.